Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Chemo and Kalini, a Hawaiian mouse tale, spelled T-A-I-L, rather clever, beautifully done and written by our author, Jimbo Harris, who joins me. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jay. I this, really appreciate those. This is a beautiful little book. Uh, not, you know, not long. Obviously, it's a book that's uh, written for children or a younger audience. At least that would be my observation on it. When did you begin writing this book, and how did it come about? Um, well, I wrote it. I, I actually wrote the story uh, a year ago, March. So in March of 2016, late March, early April. Uh, but I had the idea, the initial idea for the story for a couple of years. Um, it, 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 it came to mind uh, while I was on a vacation on Oahu with, with my family at the time. And um, my, my younger daughter, uh, whose, whose name is translated into Hawaiian, that's Kalini. Um, and, of course, the characters Kimo and Kalini aren't, uh, you know, father-daughter. They're, they're two friends. Mm-hmm. Um, that grew up together, but uh, my younger daughter was really into mice as as fun, cute, furry little creatures when she was around eight or nine years old. Right. And so we were we were on vacation in Oahu, and we were at you know very a very uh, popular tourist location, the Halona Blowhole, and standing behind the concrete barrier uh, because you know the the blowhole can be a geyser that can be very powerful at times and. You know, if you get too close, it could be a dangerous place. But sometimes the locals will walk right up to it and just stand in in the in the uh, spray of the water to cool off. But anyway, so we're we're standing behind the concrete barrier, and I'm looking over the edge, and I happen to see these two little mice running around on the lava rock in broad daylight. And it's just uh, the last thing I ever kind of expected to see mm. <laughs> at, at this place. Yes. Uh, you know, outdoors in broad daylight. When when do you when do you see mice in the wild? in general, right? That's true, true. And so, so one was darker colored in fur and the other was light brown and I, I called my daughter over and I said, I said, you know, take a look at this. Look at, look at, look at these little characters. And um, after, after that event, we were, we, we were on our way to a, a beach nearby and we started talking about naming them and we, we named them the Hawaiian translation of our names. Um, so Kimo is Jimbo uh, in Hawaiian, and Kalini is Callan in Hawaiian. Well, it's a beautifully uh, beautifully illustrated book. One thing that's unique about your book, uh, in addition to the uh, the story itself, the illustrations are phenomenal. And it's not often that I interview an author who also illustrates his own work. The, how did that come about? Thank you. Um, I, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, after we started talking about this idea of these two little characters, just this idea of a mouse in blue flowered board shorts just kind of popped into my head, a surfing mouse. And um, so the, the idea was in my head for a couple of years before I wrote the book, because that, that trip was in April of 2014. Um, and... You know, just the way the creative mind works. I don't know. I mean, it just it didn't it didn't all come out until a couple of years later, um, after I just had gone through some changes in my personal life and felt that I needed to do something with it. And so I knew I I knew I had all these creative talents that I'd never really used professionally yet. And I had this great idea for this story, and I started drawing the pictures and. Because uh, they were the, the images were still in my mind, and uh, when I began to speak with a representative at, at Ex Libris, they they you know gave me a little bit of guidance to tell me that you know a, a children's book is generally about 24 pages, and so I would need 24 images instead of the original five that I had sent in when I when I sent in the idea for my story, and uh, uh, you know so I went to work. Uh, literally doing watercolors of the ideas of the images of these characters as they went 
through this adventure in the in the story. It must have flowed because you have 54 pages. Again, a little bit unusual for, a, I, I would say, a young child's book. It's a little longer than, than typical. You yeah. you have, have done a spectacular job as an artist and as a storyteller, combining the two. Did you always have the desire to be a writer or a sharer of stories? I, I've, I've had desire to be a writer uh, kind of later in life. Um, I always had a desire to do something with my art, um, but I was always kind of keeping it as a hobby um, because the demands of life as a family man and and, and things uh, over the years, you know, I had I had corporate jobs that I was fairly successful in, and, and you know, but I was it was never really true to my real self. But uh, so I had always kind of kept art and music as a as a part-time thing, and writing came along later, even though I, I knew I had a desire to do something with writing at some point. Um, I just never really pursued it or, 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 or looked into what channels I could pursue to turn it into a career. So the idea was that, well, gosh, I've got this great idea for a, a, a children's book story. Why don't I illustrate it myself? Because then it can also showcase my work as an artist. And uh, you know, the watercolor thing, it was something that I dabbled in as a teenager. Uh, you know, I'd been drawing sports figures and football players when I was a, a little kid and and got into watercolors just as a hobby uh, by the time I was a teenager. But that sort of went away as I, got, as I went through college, even though I took a couple art classes in college. Um, you know, after college, I, it was the working world and the corporate world and then, you know, married life and raising kids and the whole nine yards. And art kind of really took a uh, uh, took a, a back place in my life um, because I've also been a musician all my life as well so I was you know my creative outlet was more toward playing in a band um, just as, also as a sort of a glorified part-time hobby um, but along the way um, during my marriage um, my, my ex-wife and I used to raise elderly Labrador retrievers uh, or rescue rather and um, I, after the first two that we had rescued in around 2006, uh, after they had passed on, I had the idea to memorialize them with a painting. And I hadn't really done any painting in a, in a very long time, but I, I, I took a, one of my favorite pictures of the two of them and did a watercolor painting. And then uh, through the years, I, I, I continued to do paintings of the other rescue labs that we we had through the years, and then I began just uh, on a very part-time basis, maybe a couple of paintings a year uh, for friends and family who also wanted to, you know, have a portrait of their of their pet or you know even of their home, things like that. Um, so then that kind of rekindled my ability and my my joy of doing watercolor. Um, I'm I'm really not a conventional watercolor artist. A lot of a lot of real watercolor artists, uh, and I say real because I know there are artists out there that are really making a living, you know, that, that work very hard at getting into galleries and so forth. Uh, um, they'll tend to use a lot less paint and a lot more water than, than what I do. I get pretty detailed with it, as you might see in the drawings. Um, and, and so, you know, the reason why the book wound up being 54 pages was sort of by uh, sort of a, a sort of a creative mistake, really. It was, uh, uh, you know, I was given the idea that, that, that my book had to be 24 pages long, and for each page I needed an illustration. And when I submitted it to the design team um, and it came back, well, because of the amount of text that was actually in the book, um, the original design came back as an 8.5 by 11 and 54 pages. And, wow. Um, yeah, which is you know, like you said, it's it's not typical for for a children's book, but you know that's sort of how I've always kind of done things creatively is is not not conventionally. Well, I, a, I, a young a young child can look at the the uh, the uh, artwork that's in the book and be entertained by that alone. A, yeah. As you began to craft the story and the artwork itself, was there an ulterior motive besides just sharing a story? I mean, was there a, an underlying message that came through that you really maybe hadn't planned on or maybe you had planned on? Uh, no, that's a great question because 
yeah, the underlying message came along at a time where, um, um, you know, my life changed after being married for 20 years. Um, my ex-wife and I had an amicable split, but it was a, it was a, a, a big change for me, you know. And um, I have a very good friend who just encouraged me to pursue my creative endeavors. And uh, I don't know, at the time, you know, after going through sort of a difficult period, I was, I was feeling a lot of love at the time and just kind of felt like I needed to sort of put that into the story as it developed and, and somehow, you know, create a message for, for children that, you know, this world isn't all about what we see going on in the, the news or social media and, you know, that there are, there are generally human beings and people in general all want the same thing. We all want to be happy. We all want love. We all want success. We all want to help each other as much as we can, you know. I think, I think there's a, a lot of that sort of thing is missing in our American culture and global culture today. I mean, it, it definitely exists in certain realms, uh, though, you know. I mean, but, but it, it, we are in a world where there's just every day you hear about something horrible going on. Um, in the news or on the, in the media or, or social media and that type of thing. And I just felt like, you know, there needs to be, I mean, there's a lot of musicians and artists who are all con- trying to convey similar messages that have been doing that sort of thing for, you know, well over 50 years or more. Um, and, you know, you might have read in the, in, the, in the back of the book about the author that says that I play with a Grateful Dead tribute band and um, I guess, you know, that sort of message is part of the hand-me-down from the Grateful Dead themselves. And, uh, you know, people may have their ideas of who the Grateful Dead are if they have any idea who the Grateful Dead are. Um, and there's, there's certain aspects of their culture that where they came from that, you know, to many people, if they don't really understand it, are, may seem sort of taboo. Um, I guess, you know, I won't hide it with regard to the drug culture, but... It, that was such a small aspect of really in, in the overall scheme of what their message was uh, and is still today. I, I saw an interview with Bob Weir on the CBS Evening News about how you know they talked about how the Grateful Dead these days are woven into the fabric of Americana, and so you know something that's just built to last really uh, that has a message that is that of kindness and love and, you know, really caring about how the other person is doing or other people are doing. That's just something that I felt like incorporating, and it wasn't purely just because of the Grateful Dead. It was, it was just purely because I was feeling a lot of love and feeling that, you know, no matter what hits you in life, you, you still need to persevere. One of the best ways to be kind is to share things with people and don't be afraid and take a little adventure every now and then, you know, be a, be a little bit of a kindred spirit. Don't, don't be afraid to help somebody out if they look like they need help. Um, you know, I know it's, it's, it's a fine line because I, I do understand. I mean, I raised two kids myself and you want to protect them from people that may ask for your help when their intentions are not good, you know, but still, it, it, I just the way I feel about all that is, you're, you're, I think society would just be better off if we would just all stop being so afraid of each other, and be more willing to to share kindness and and help. So the underlying message then is kindness and help, basically uh, in what you've described. But is there an exciting? I don't know visual either creatively or or in the story itself that that will capture the attention of the reader and the child well yeah um i mean that's where it comes down to you know chemo <laughs> this little guy who discovered a, a a broken surfboard necklace charm in the sand i mean you know he he learned he taught himself how to surf <laughs> and he he knew that Kalini needed help out getting her charm out of the out of the inside of the of the edge of the blowhole where she couldn't reach it after she had gone and, and helped out a stranger who got too close to the edge. Um, you know, her her little aloha charm fell off and landed in the inside of the Helena blowhole and 
you know, chemo being a mouse could probably squeeze right up through there if he caught the right wave. So the idea was that he was very brave, and, is very brave, and that, you know, he, he'd go out into the middle of the Pacific and, and try to catch the biggest wave that he possibly could so that he, he could generate maximum speed on a surfboard or even a tiny surfboard. Mm. I mean, you know, again, it's, it, it shouldn't be meant to be taken literally because it's a children's book, of course, right? Right. Um, and then, you know, I want to address something that you asked about in terms of the, you know, the content of the, of the literature itself in, in the reading. Um, you know, I, I studied some geography when I was in college and I, uh, a little bit of geology along the way, and, and, and I, I just kind of felt like it was important to describe, you know, what the hole in a blowhole is in, in general, general terms and why it exists. And, and, you know, but I also felt like the, the story needed some type of adventure. And so that's really where it comes, uh, that aspect of it is, is Kimo Kalini learning how to surf and Kimo being brave enough to go right out into the, the, the most roughest and deepest waters to, to catch that wave. And then not only that, but to ride it right into a, a hole on the rocky shore that would push him up through the lava rock. <laughs> wow. Well, that's excitement for sure, and and anybody that has uh, watched surfing on on the uh, on the television or has been able to to visit Hawaii or other places where surfing is a, is king, it, this this is a, a fun story. It, it's beautifully illustrated, and as I said, whether the child can read or not, they'll enjoy the illustrations. They're beautifully put, and it also tells a story in its own own right. Uh, as a standalone, just the photos, uh, just the sketches themselves. I, I love the uh, love the illustrations, and this is a wonderful first effort. Fifty four pages. The title of which is again is uh, Kimo and Kalini, a Hawaiian mouse tale. And uh, my author Jimbo Jim Harris has uh, has joined me today. Jimbo, where do we get copies of the of your book? Uh, well, it is available um, through Xlibris.com, or you can order through ChemoAndKalini.com. Um, there's not a whole lot of content on my website, ChemoAndKalini.com, just yet, but you, you can go directly through my website. And if you place orders there, that basically fulfills orders uh, through Xlibris. Um, I'm still hoping for some success with some of the other programs that I have with Xlibris that will enable this book to get into retail stores. But at this current point, Jay, I, I don't know specifically of any retail stores that have it in stock yet. I know there are a couple of stores that have bought some copies, um, and I've been inquiring with the people at Xlibris if they could help me find out where those stores are, but I just don't have that information yet. Um, it is also available on Amazon as well. Um, of course, it, it helps me out a little bit more if folks can go direct through Xlibris or direct through my website, chemoandkalini.com. Um, also, if, you know, if people are here locally in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, um, I do have a few first edition copies that... Uh, Required a little bit of editing that uh, I had missed when I when I did the original edits because uh, you know as as you know Xlibris is a self-publishing company and um, I, I missed a few things when I when I sent my first submission in uh, so anyway the first edition copies have a few little anomalies that I've corrected since then with Xlibris but uh, I, I do sell the hard copies myself uh, at various events around the area uh, including gigs with my band uh, which is a a local Grateful Dead tribute band. Well, excellent. And they can do a search online under your name, too, and you do go by the uh, the name Jimbo, J-I-M-B-O, and last name yep. Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. They can do a search under those uh, those two names and find you and also locate this book. So local booksellers can also order it in, order it in by its name, Kimbo and Kalini, or I'm sorry, Kimo and Kalini, and uh, also find it at the local bookseller by by requesting it, and under the author's name, Jimbo Harris. Thank you, Jimbo, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you, Jay. If, if I may, I just want to take another moment to just comment a little bit about the content of the book because sure. again, you know, it's not 54 pages, and there's 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 you know quite a lot of reading content there. I know it's not a typical children's book, as we, you know, had had discussed in terms of what might be the most successful retail format, quote unquote, you know. But 
with regard to the illustrations, it does attract the small children. And the idea is, you know, yeah, we, I, I personally think that challenging kids to learn a little bit more and try to read a little bit more at another level that may be above whatever their age level is for reading, um, you know, that's the whole idea, right? To To try to engage kids so that they learn how to read because reading is extremely, extremely important. And, um, you know, I read to my kids every day of their young lives while they were growing up. You know, they're, they're teenagers now, so they don't need me to read to them anymore. Um, but that was a big part of, of my life in raising them. And that's another reason why I, I wanted to do something like this, because I, I do value the importance of, of children learning how to read. And um, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you appreciate the story and the artwork for what it is, Jay, and uh, and the opportunity for this interview. And um, I, I just, I'm very, for lack of a better word, I'm very grateful well, I, for this. I'm <laughs> grateful in your life. That part's uh, really important, yes. Thank you for joining me today, and uh, best of luck with this. And hopefully we'll get to visit in the future when this one hits the top of the charts and uh, the next one is released. Thanks again for joining me today. Feel free anytime, Jay. I, I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. The title of the book, Living with NF, in a story of survival. And the author is Hannah Redding. And Hannah joins us now on Ex Libris on Air. Hello, Hannah. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm happy to, uh, you know, to be able to talk to you and to talk to the audience. You know, I'm very excited about sharing my story. Well, we appreciate you being with us, Hannah. This story is very, very different because, as most people would say, I know when I first saw the title, I went, what is NF? Right. <laughs> so tell us, what is NF? Um, NF is known as norfibromatosis. Um, it's actually two types, one and two. Um, I have type 1, and what that causes non-cancerous tumors, uh, cephalea spots. It can uh, cause uh, blindness in the eyes and scoliosis. The list goes on and on and on. So it's a rare genetic disorder. Yes, correct, yes. And how old were you when this was discovered? Um, I was 5 years old when I was first diagnosed. And what were what were the symptoms then? What were what was showing up on your body? Um, when my mom was getting me dressed one day, she noticed like brown spots on my body, and then she noticed this big bump on my forehead. And then when she seen that it was getting like you know growing bigger and bigger, that's when she came concerned, and um, she rushed me to Children's Hospital, and then that's how I was diagnosed. We've all heard the uh, well. We've all heard this this name elephant man uh, some of us have seen some of pictures of him uh, he had this disorder yes and he he was 
basically very uh, grossly affected by it, right? Yes, he was, yes. Where he had, what, tumors on his face and on his body. He was very disfigured. Yes, his case is, like, very uh, severe, which is also, you see in a lot of the people that have uh, NS. It can either be type 1 and 2. So it varies on each person, um, each case. And he died at a fairly early age. Yes. I believe it was the age of 26. Okay. Right. So uh, your form of this at first... What did the doctors do? Did were they even could they even figure out what was going on? They actually, to be honest with you, they wasn't really for sure. And back in the early eighties, when I was first diagnosed, it wasn't much information known about neurofibromatosis. So my mom, she had to get a second um, opinion, and then that's when uh, she had got Doctor Lee, who, who uh, diagnosed me. He was able to diagnose me with neurofibromatosis, known as the elephant man disease, but. You know, a lot of people call it that, but we call it neurofibromatosis, and that's how that came about, you know, me being um, diagnosed. And to make it so, my story so uh, rare is because I was the only one in my family that had it. No one in my family had it on my mom's side or dad's side. It was just me. So there's really no understanding of why you have it. Um, correct, yes. Just one of those genetic disorders, as as it's described. Yes. Now, you were, after being diagnosed, though, you did have some surgeries. Tell us about those and why you had them. Um, the reason why I had got my first uh, surgery, which was um, at the age of six, I believe, because um, my mom seen the increase of my, the bump on my forehead growing more, and then, and then I had one on my nose that was also growing, and that's when she was like, you know, I'm really concerned because the bump was on my forehead, it was going towards my eye area. So she thought my eyesight was going to be affected. So the doctors, they did uh, remove it, and then it grew back again the second time. And then I got another surgery. I think I was about 9 or 10, and then the same thing happened again. The tumor grew back. And then the third time again, and you said, my mind was like, you know what, I don't want to continue to put you through this. And we just said, you know, we're going to pray about it and just... You know, just see what happens, you know, and we're going to watch it. And you just go to the genetic clinic once a year and follow up, and we'll go from there. So year to year, kind of watch these tumors, and did you ever have any surgery since then? I haven't. I thought about it, but I was, like, you know, afraid and hesitant, like, you know, if I get it done, you know, this can happen. I had, like, you know, all kinds of um, uh, fears. You know, but it had, you know, put a lot of effect on my life, especially with, you know, growing up, you know, feeling like out of place with other people, you know, getting teased by kids and being rejected. Even today as an adult, you know, grown, you know, it took me a long time to accept what I had because I always just felt, you know, odd, you know, like the oddball. So you still have this bump on your forehead and on your nose? Yes. And it isn't something that can be covered up with makeup. No. I used to, at one point in time, I used to be so ashamed. I used to wear my bangs, like, long in the middle of my face to hide it. It used to be, like, a long piece of hair in front of my face to hide my nose and my forehead. And my mom used to be like, Hannah, you you drawing more attention to yourself. And I did this for, like, years, like, from the age of, I think I was in middle school from the age of, what, I was in eighth grade up until about 11th grade, and that's when I decided to, get my bangs cut short and stop hiding it because I wanted my face to show my mom wanted me to show my face for my graduation pictures and once they was cut I was like you know what this don't look too bad I have nothing to hide so I kind of stepped out my comfort zone then to accept what I had would have as far as the neurofibromatosis because it wasn't it wasn't easy and even today it's still not easy living with it sure uh, we take that for granted those of us who, when we look in the mirror, we don't see some disfigurement, and its uh, I'm sure it's very, very difficult and emotional, especially for a young lady and even as a young woman and a, an adult woman. Yes. Well, when you look back at those early years when you first discovered this, what did it do to you? Uh, it must have been, I mean, you must have been scared. I was very scared. Um, it caused a lot of insecurities, like a lot of fear. 
I mean, it, it put me, like, in a shell, like a box of shame, because I used to be so afraid, like, to build relationships with people because I was afraid of being teased by them and, you know, friends that I thought was my friends, they rejected me. So it was not easy, and it got bad to the point where my mom put it me. I was in therapy for a very long time. And I used to go to my, you know, like my depressions and anxiety and wonder, like, why God, why me? Why can't I look like the regular, like a regular young lady, you know? Right. And I questioned myself all mm. the time. So I went through a lot, and I had, like, a journal, and I used to write down, like, you know, what I was going through. So it was kind of like my me having a journal was like my best friend. And I'm sure some close friends helped you get through it. Yes, and one of the people that helped me get through it, it was my husband, um, Jermaine. I, when I met him, I was, we was I was a teenager when I met him, and um, he helped me through the whole thing. And I wound up marrying him when I was about 19, and then he passed away in 2004 from lupus. So when that happened, when he passed away, that kind of was like part of me had went, but it was like when that happened, it made me think about, okay, my story, like the right, not to look at my story as being a victim, but being looking at my story as being as a winner and how me sharing my experience, I can help other people. Very good. And, and, and that was my whole purpose of writing a book, sharing my story and bringing more awareness to other people about neurofibromatosis. Well, I'm looking at your table of contents, and you have a chapter, Things Changing for the Better. What, what happened there? What, what was changing for the better? I guess my whole, like, outlook on life and how I was constantly looking at myself thinking about being rejected, and I'm like, you know what, you know, I'm not a victim, I'm a winner, and, you know, me cutting my bangs, you know, showing, okay, yeah, I have neurofibromatosis, I was born this way, there's nothing I can do about it, but what can I do with my story, you know, what can I do about bringing awareness, so that, that was my turning point then. Well, and that's we're, why I decided to write that chapter. We're glad that you have had that kind of a breakthrough. And, and then, though, there was the big, big challenge, becoming, uh, getting married and then thinking about having children. Yes. And that was, like, another big thing as well, too. I took um, a risk. I went through a lot. It wasn't easy. And, you know, I, me and my husband during the time prayed about it. He was so supportive. Like, if I didn't have him and if I didn't have God, I wouldn't have even got through that whole experience. You know, so I don't. I'm I'm truly grateful for it because you were aware that there were some risks that your children could have. You could pass on to your children this genetic problem. Yes. And there is a there is a happy ending to that. Yes, it is. You know, by uh, they are very healthy today. They they showed no signs of it, and um, you know, they they my miracle babies. And how old are they today? Um, my daughter, she's 19, and my son is 15. So we're, when, they, we're, when they were growing up, when they finally realized that you had some differences, uh, you know, these, these tumors on your face, what, uh, what were their questions? Of, that must have uh, been hard for you. It was. They didn't know nothing too much about it, but they would ask me, you know, a little bit about my forehead and my nose, and I would explain to them, like, you know, this is something that I was born with, and y'all could have had the same thing. You know, I took a risk for having it. You know, having y'all too, but y'all don't have what I have. And that was, like, the easiest way to go about it then when they used to ask me about it, especially when they was younger. So as you became an adult, uh, how, what kind of an effect did this have on you in taking your place in the world, getting a job, doing those things that we all take for granted? I mean, it took a big effect on me because it helped me see my situation in a different light, like not in a negative way, but in a positive way because my my neurofibromatosis, it could have been worse because I've seen like other cases with people where they had bumps all over their face, they couldn't walk. So it kind of like I looked at my story as minor, you know, not as a, a me being a winner, like, you know, just taking that opportunity of um, sharing my story through my book and just, just um you know, just sharing it in a positive way. Not only that, just just uh, just bringing positivity into many different things that I've been through and turning it into something different and not looking at it in a negative way. Trying to leave a positive effect on as many people as I come in contact with because they're asking, like, what is neurofibromatosis or, you know, what happened to your nose? And um, and at one point in time, I used to get offended about it. And I was like, you know, I tell them, look, I was born with this. And I would explain to them, like, no, this is, is neurofibromatosis and... You know, and that's how that go about. 
Did you ever have any other effects from from the NF? Any other thing? For right now, um, you know, my right now everything is like, you know, I haven't had any issues like with my eyesight. No more bumps has you know popped up or anything like that. You know, I monitor where I eat, like as far as like making sure it's no red dye. I don't eat no red meat or anything. So I think they have a lot to uh, to do with it as well too. So you're very disciplined in how you live because you know that will help your situation. Yes. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story. What's the best way to get your book? Um, on Amazon, and also I do have my own website. You can purchase my book. It's at uh, www.hannaredding.com. com, and Hannah is spelled H-A-N-A, and then Redding, R-E-D-D-I-N-G, com. Well, that's fantastic, yes. Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The Boat Captain's Conundrum. A whimsical tour through a policy wonk's mind. And the policy wonk who's joining me from Wisconsin is the author, Dr. Tom Corbett. Welcome to the program, sir. Well, it's great to be here. It's good to to uh, catch up with uh, some of the work that you've done. I understand for those who don't know what a wonk is, that's what you are, I guess. It's a, a kid with interest in science uh, could be considered a wonk or a studious, a hardworking individual. You had a passion for politics and some of the uh, peripheral issues related to that. Is that basically the content of your book? Uh, yes. Uh, it uh, Basically, I was trying to communicate or get to how do policy wonks, if you if you want to use that term, think about the world. And that's different than the way politicians think. You yes. know, politicians are into values and power, but policy wonks are into uh, how to get at what might make the, uh, the world a better place, the technical aspects of it, the management aspects of it. So we do something different than what you would find uh, in the political world. You have a an interesting background as a uh, younger student. You uh, were uh, an individual who had a passion for mathematics. Uh, no, that's not correct, is that? You, you actually didn't fit the general mold. Uh, explain a little of your early education, how you became interested in this area of uh, pursuit. Well, the, the policy one, uh, I mean, the boat captain's conundrum, if you if you will, is just a cute way of saying I was not a mathematical wizard by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I kind of avoided it in my younger schooling. But what I found uh, after I sort of fell into policy work uh, is that there is more to being a good policy person. And, to, and I, I will admit that uh, I'm more than just a policy walk. I was an academic. I taught policy courses. I ran a top research uh, outfit at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that looked at uh, poverty and policy issues. So uh, I was uh, rather successful in the academic world, but never felt I had the requisite sort of technical skills. And what I found is that to be a really good policy person, you needed a, a broader base of skills, not just uh, econometrics, not just the technical, mathematical kinds of things that we associate with policy people, but a good understanding of people, uh, sensitivity to what's going, what's going on, the ability in particular 
to bring diverse uh, issues and and things to, together in a synergistic way. I think that's probably as important as any technical skills, and led to my well, I might say this success as a policy person. In reading your book or looking at your book, uh, it is uh, a number of pages, almost 400, I believe. You have uh, one diagram that caught my attention that's called con- that, that deals with concepts and leadership. And explain to my listeners a visual of what that diagram represents. Uh, I wish I could remember. I can't. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of a kind of kind of a. It looks from the surface. It has a uh, uh, the idea of concept on the top, and the leadership on the bottom is much wider and broader, and it's hidden under a a veil of water. I think if I'm reading. Oh, the, that. oh yes, I understand. It's it's the iceberg metaphor. Yes. Yes, um, iceberg. Yeah. Right. Correct. Uh, uh, that uh, that that particular graphic uh, developed or emerged when we were, when we were looking at uh, how to bring various programs together. Uh, you know, the the problem we have in American social policy is that we tend to treat people in silos. You know, we treat one issue at a time. You know, one target population uh, at a time. But problems, social problems, dysfunctional families have many problems and they mm-hmm. have to be dealt with simultaneously and coherently. But it's very difficult to bring these different uh, programs together. And the, 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 the issue is not, again, technical or, or management, but it's about culture. All these different programs have their own culture. The people who work in them have their own language and way of looking at the world. And so the trick is to bring these people to, uh, uh, together in a way where they can actually function a- as a whole. And most of those issues are under the surface. What we see uh, are the things that are obvious to people, the, the rules, the, the laws, and so forth. But it's, the, it's all the things about leadership, uh, about uh, talking the same language, getting along when you really come from uh, different backgrounds, those are the things that are under the surface and less well recognized, and that's what you have to deal with. So again, it's getting beyond the surface, and that's what the whole book is about, really. Uh, it's not uh, doing public policy is very, very difficult. Uh, there are surface answers, and that's the, those are the kinds of things you see in the in the political arena. Mm-hmm. And then there there are the real answers that are underneath that that where you have to think about uh, things in a very hard way. And some of the things that we think are causal, that A causes B or, or A will solve B, uh, really don't hold up when you look at them a bit more uh, carefully. And so that's what a, a real policy one does, is they think hard, they see relationships, they see consequences that other people don't see, uh, they think about things in a, in a more uh, sort of a deeper and more com- complex way. And it, it, uh, it, that those skills don't necessarily all come from training, academic training, or in the classroom. Some of them, I think, are inborn, and some of them you develop over a lifetime of experience. It's uh, very much environmental. I love the quote from Oscar Wilde that you have included in your book in Chapter 3. I'm so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I'm saying. That describes a lot of the politicians and policies uh, in place in our world. Would you describe your book as complicated, or did you simplify it down where just about anybody can understand the concepts and enjoy the read? I think that almost anyone can can enjoy it at, at some level. A, a bit of it gets technical, and I use some of my prior writings um, that were written for a, an ac- a primarily an academic and, and policy uh, audiences. Uh, but there's a lot in there that's funny, uh, that's very that's written at at a, at a very readable level, and I think that there are some insights uh, that can be enjoyed by anyone who has even a basic interest in how our world works uh, and what might make it work a little bit better. In your world of uh, policy decision-making and and guidance, what's the funniest thing that you've included in the book or maybe something that is not included but may come in a future publication? (laughs) Oh, well, 
uh, it's hard, hard, hard to say. Most of, most of my humor is sort of a dry, uh, tongue-in-cheek thing. But okay. I always like to tell a, a story when, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was in a, a meeting in Chicago, and the governor of our state was, uh, was at the time, was trying to run for president. So he, he came to this uh, session that the foundation was putting on, and he, um, when he realized I was there, he didn't particularly like me. And so he, he <laughs> sort of, uh, laid, laid into me and, and told the, uh, audience that, uh, you know, they should, they should don't give money to these, these organizations, my research institute, they just go about attacking him to give, give him the money and he'll solve all the world's problems. Right. Uh, and so on and so forth. And then anyway, the, the president of the foundation came up to me uh, uh, after he finished his remarks and whispered in my ear, uh, in our eyes, Tom, your stock has just gone up. And they were very kind <laughs> to me in the ensuing years. They gave me a lot of money. <laughs> so, so so, sometimes when you're publicly embarrassed, it turns out just fine. Oh, absolutely. That That's a great story. You, you have uh, 453 pages and so on. You have been a part of either as primary author or co-author of six other publications and another one in the works. What is the process of writing a book of this complexity? How long did it take you, Tom? Uh, probably about, about six months. I write fairly fast, um, and... Uh, I think um, let me let me let me back up just a, a little bit and sure. say that uh, there are three that that, that, that hold together as uh, what I call a trilogy, and I call it my policy memoir trilogy. And I want to make special note of those three. Uh, the, the first is sort of "Ouch, Now I Remember," mm. which uh, is an exploration of my early years, how I went from this uh, working class kid who showed no promise whatsoever to uh, the head of a major research uh, uh, institute, uh, policy wonk, someone who worked on Clinton's welfare reform bill and consulted in many, many states and in Canada. Uh, and that was quite a journey. Uh, uh, the second one was browsing through my candy store, which was the story of my battles uh, in, the, in the poverty world and the welfare reform world over some four decades. Uh, uh, if you were involved in welfare reform, you were battling every day. I mean, it was not, it was not an issue for the faint of heart. And then the boat captain's conundrum, which is a more of an exploration of, of the ideas that I, and the concepts that I, that, that I, uh, I feel passionately about and how, uh, you know, policy people think about things. Bottom line of all these books is that I think doing public policy is a fascinating career i enjoyed it immensely um it's not for everyone it's not for the faint of heart uh but it's uh it's, it's something that i found very rewarding and i would probably do it all over again and you have a new release coming soon right uh my first fictional work uh if i hadn't become a policy one when i was a little kid i wanted to be an author uh, but i decided i also like to eat and so uh you know being a policy person an academic you know at least would pay the bills but now that I'm retired, uh, I can go and sort of uh, pursue my first love, which is writing. And I've finally written my first fictional book, and it's called uh, Tenuous Tendrils. Uh, and it should be out next month. Well, so, congratulations. One question I have about your early life and how you got started or what motivated you to get into this line of thinking. And uh, you say it was a passion. How did that passion get ignited? Uh, if you read Ouch Now I Remember, you will find out. It, it was always there at some level. I mean, even as a little kid in an ethnic working-class neighborhood, I was always kind of concerned about the wider world and, and justice and social justice and things like that. But falling into the, the, uh, a policy career was, was virtually totally by accident. Um, and I'll just give you part of that story real quickly. Um, I got a call one day that I had a job interview in Madison, Wisconsin uh, from a professor I was working with in Milwaukee. And I said, well, what's the job for? He said, I have no idea. I just have a room number and, uh, you know, in, in Madison, mm. to show up at this time. And I did it turned out to be a job as a, as a social service analyst, researcher for the state of Wisconsin. And uh, I somehow got the job. I don't know how, but I got that job. And I got involved in doing uh, kind of policy work. 
loved it. And about four years later, went to the university, got my doctorate, and I was off and running after uh, after that. So I fell into the actual work by accident, but the underlying passion for making the world a better place, I think, was always there. I think that, to some extent, is an inbred or inherent sort of attribute. Fabulous. The title of this book, The Boat Captain's Conundrum, a whimsical tour through a policy wonk's mind. My guest has been Dr. Tom Corbett. Sir, my listeners will want to get a copy of this. How do they do so? Uh, they can go to uh, Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble's, Ex Libris. It's, uh, it's available at all, the, uh, all those major outlets. Do you keep notes? Because you have mentioned that you reflect back on certain incidences that uh, have happened and have included them in your work. Do you keep a diary or journal of any type? No. Uh, in fact, when I fir- the first of the trilogy I wrote was browsing through my candy store, and I had a colleague at the University of Wisconsin uh, read the first few chapters, and uh, he said to me, Tom, do you have a diary? And I, uh, and I said, uh, no. And I actually also sent it off to uh, the guy who's the president of the Russell Sage Foundation now. He was a former colleague at Wisconsin. And he said, my God, you have such an incredible memory. I don't know. I, 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 there, there, I, there are whole years that I, I have forgotten, but mm. there are many, many uh, conversations, meetings, incidences. I remember clear as a bell going back to when I was a child and I just draw upon those. I mean, it also helped me be a, a great teacher too, because I just had this, this uh, store of vignettes and stories that I could bring into the classroom or into my public talks. Uh, at a, at a, it's just the way my mind works. It's like, it's like I, you know, the fil- it's like the editing floor of, of a of a movie, you know, film production uh, system where I have all these cuts that uh, I can draw upon to, to to make a collage, if you will. Well, it's an exceptional gift, and thank you for sharing that with us today. Again, the book title: "The Boat Captain's Conundrum: A Whimsical Tour Through a Policy Wonk's Mind." Dr. Tom Corbett has joined me from Wisconsin. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. And uh, best of luck on the, the future publications and the, the, write, the writing as you pursue your passion. Thanks again. Thank you. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.